Let's open God's holy word to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, we'll begin reading at verse 11 and read from there through verse 22. This will form a portion of the basis for our exposition of the first part of the Lord's Prayer. The address of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, especially this passage of Scripture will form the basis for our exposition of that little word, our, our Father who art in heaven. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Lord's Day 46 of the Heidelberg Catechism explains to us the address of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, page 25, in the back of your Psalter, will give you Lord's Day 46. What hath Christ commanded us to address? Why hath Christ commanded us to address God thus? Our Father, that immediately in the very beginning of our prayer, he might excite in us a childlike reverence for and confidence in God, which are the foundation of our prayer. Namely, that God is become our Father in Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of him in true faith than our parents will refuse us earthly things. Why is it here added, which art in heaven? Lest we should form any earthly conceptions of God's heavenly majesty, and that we may expect from his almighty power all things necessary for soul and body. Beloved of God, even if you had audience with a particular president of the United States that you were not all that fond of, you would still begin that conversation with an address. You would not approach him and just start saying random things to him without addressing him first. How much more then, when we come before the God of all the earth, we don't just randomly start saying things to him or stream of consciousness in prayer to God, but we begin by addressing him. 
and not only addressing him, but addressing him properly. If my child would speak to me and address me, but come to me and address me this way, hey Corey, how are you doing? You want to talk? I would sit down with that child and say, we have to discuss here how you address me properly as your father. How much more as we address the great God of all the earth, we must address him properly. Our address will show our attitude towards him. It's going to show the state of our heart as we come close to him. The Catechism points out that the Lord's own teaching with regard to how we pray begins with an address and begins with a proper address. Address that would reveal an attitude, an approach to God that takes into account the fact that He is tender towards us, that He is our Father, and yet that He is holy and majestic, that He is in heaven. And that the child of God who comes to God that way, understanding who He is properly, is overwhelmed at the fact that He has sweet access to His Father in heaven. That's the theme this morning, sweet access to our Father in heaven. First, access to whom? Second, access is ours. And third, access is sweet. Access to whom? Well, let's notice first that the Lord's teaching here, when He requires of us to pray our Father who art in heaven, requires us to say, Father, and not mother. Probably for most of church history, the church wouldn't have to take any cognizance of that. But sadly, in our day, this needs to be pointed out. Recently, a Bible translation came out, which is not a translation. And that's called the Inclusive Bible. The first line of the Lord's Prayer in that Bible, in the Gospel accounts that contain the Lord's Prayer, reads this way. Our Father slash Mother, who art above, and in other places refers to God as Heavenly Father slash Heavenly Mother, arguing that the reason why they have printed the Bible that way is because when the Bible was originally written, it was written in an age of male patriarchy and of male chauvinism. And therefore, that's why the Bible calls God Father. And since we live in an age that's more inclusive and gender fluid, we must now change how we think of Jehovah God, denying the inspiration of Scripture as God's own self-revelation of who He in fact is to us, denying the fact that the Bible has been revealed as truth for all times and all places. And instead, thinking of the Bible as merely the consciousness of a people group regarding spiritual things for a time. And seeking then to change God's word to fit the whims of godless and confused societies. Everywhere in the scriptures, including here in the first line of the Lord's Prayer, God reveals himself as masculine. The Greek word behind the word father is pater, and it can mean nothing else but father. God is masculine. He is father. He's not masculine in the sense of being biologically male, of course, because he has no physical biology. But he reveals himself as masculine. There are places 
of course, in the Bible, where God compares an aspect of his character as father also to the character of a female, of a mother, for example, like Isaiah 46, verse 3. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb, where God is comparing his tender, committed care for Israel to that of a mother. But that's very different, of course, from God revealing himself as feminine. Never once does God speak of himself in the Bible in female terms, in female names or titles. They're always masculine. What God was doing there in Isaiah 46 is very similar to what the Apostle Paul was doing in Galatians 4, verse 19. My little children, Paul says, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. He's comparing his love for the Galatian churches to the love of a mother for them. But nobody reads that and thinks to themselves, well, Paul must really think that he's a woman. Or we'd better start calling Paul now the Apostle Paul slash Paulette. So too with God. Though he has characteristics that are comparable to motherly tenderness and other characteristics that females in the kingdom of Jesus Christ image in themselves. He is masculine. He is father. And that affects the way we think of him and the way that we approach him in prayer. We don't approach him as mother, which of course would easily lead us to conclude that he, in the end, since wives submit to their husbands, that perhaps he has to submit to us. But he's father. And all that that notion contains scripturally, the notion of headship, the notion of authority, and everything else that fatherhood is. What is a father? A father is progenitor. He is originator. A father is provider. He grants what those under his authority and headship stand in need of. A father is protector. A father is the one who takes the lead and says this way, and all of these things are God as father, and we are to approach him this way as father. If someone would ask you, who is God? What would you say, Hurt? What is God like? What would you say? There's a lot of things you could say in answer to that question. You could say, he is the creator, he is the sovereign one, the Lord over all. But I submit to you this morning that if you're going to get at the heart of the heart, in the essence of who God is, you would say God is Father. He is creator to be sure, absolutely. But to say that he is creator does not get at the very depths of who he is, the very essence, most fundamental level of who he is. If that was the case, then he would be dependent upon his creation to be who he is. For one cannot be a creator without a creation that he has created. And that would mean that he was not God before his creation really, but that he developed and became himself after he created, he became creator. If you say sovereign or ruler gets to the deepest point, you have the same problem, don't you? For that would mean that he could not be who he is at his most fundamental, essential level unless there was something for him to rule over. And therefore he would be dependent upon his creation to become who he is. Rather, 
One of the most fundamental things about God, if not the most fundamental thing about God as a being, is that he is a father who delights in a son in the power of the Spirit. Because he is a father, fathering a son and a son, receiving the fatherhood of a father in his triune life before he ever creates anything. Put it this way, children. Children, before God ever created anything, what was he doing? It's a foolish way of speaking, but before God ever created anything, what was he doing? That will tell us who he is at the deepest, most fundamental level. And the answer to that question is John 17, verse 24. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world, Jesus says. He was a father eternally loving his eternally generated son and an eternally generated son delighting in the eternal love of his eternal father all in the eternal spirit this is who he is this is who he is in spite of what islam says who he is Islam despises the notion that the Christian God is a father. It thinks that demeaning. Let me quote from the Quran, Surah 19. It is not befitting to the majesty of Allah that he should beget a son. For Islam, this is beneath the dignity of the God of all the earth. That he should be a father, begetting a son, even if eternally doing so. And yet this is the beauty and the majesty and the glory of the true God of heaven and earth revealed on the pages of scripture. That this is who he is at the most fundamental level. He is a father. That something most fully revealed about him in the New Testament. It's there in the Old Testament, to be sure. Read Isaiah chapter 64. But it's not until that eternally generated Son, the second person of the Trinity, shows himself to us, embodies himself in human flesh, that we really understand that this is who God is in his essence. That it becomes most fully revealed that this is so the God of all the earth. That eternally he's been a father of a son and he showed us his son who's come down amongst us. And that's why it's not until the New Testament that it's emphasized that we must address him this way. When you pray, say, our Father. But the kind of Father who is in heaven, we don't want to lose the in heavenness either of His grandeur and His majesty and His high and lifted up transcendence above us. He is our Father who art in heaven and ever the church and ever the individual child of God must hold these two things together. His tenderness towards us like as a father pitieth his children and his greatness and his majesty and his holiness and his austerity. Lest on the one hand thinking of him as God turn his fatherhood into a kind of squishy thing as though he is father or a mother or on the other hand turn his holiness into a thing so that he's like the cold God of Islam who does not come close 
to his people and does not beget a son and know warmth and love and union, Father and Son. And you know, it is ever the work of the devil to try to separate these two in the life of the church and in the life of the individual child of God so that he addresses God with only one of them in his mind and not the other. Because if he can get to the church to do that, or the individual child of God to do that, that child of God or that church it becomes like someone riding a bicycle on a wobbly wheel. It's not straight as it is, and eventually it's going to go off in one direction or the other, either to a direction of legalism, that he is this harsh God and I must earn his love, or to the other side of antinomianism, that he's a pushover of a God. And his word doesn't mean much. And so watch the devil. Watch the devil at the very beginning. Look at him in the first temptation of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. Through this kind of lens, and you can see something of what he's doing. But first of all, notice that in Genesis 2 and 3, already there on those first pages of Scripture, Jehovah reveals himself just that way. Jehovah, Lord, all capital letters, the God of the covenant, a term that indicates something of intimacy to be sure as that covenant is a bond of fellowship between God and His people. And that the devil knows it very well. That that's who God is. And he's heard God speak that name to Adam and Eve already. The Lord God all caps, had not caused it to rain. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, had formed man out of the dust of the ground. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast in the field, which Jehovah, the Lord God, had made. And yet when the devil comes to tempt Eve in the garden, he does not refer to God by that name that God had used when he spoke. Because the last thing he wants Eve to get a sense of is the love of this God for her. Of the fact that this God has bound himself to her. And so instead, he calls him God. Yea, hath God said, You cannot eat of every tree in the garden. That cruel being out there in heaven who rules over your life. And then, you shall not surely die. He knows the day that you eat, you're going to become as gods yourselves, determining good and evil for yourself. But he wants to hold you down. We've talked about this before. The devil is tempting him, tempting her. He's a, he's a tyrant. He, he's off there in heaven. He has no love for you. He has his thumb upon you. He's trying to squish you and to keep you down in your life. It's no wonder that this desire grows in Eve to get away from him. I need to get out from under him somehow then. I need to make myself big, big, greater until I'm like him and I can escape from his tyrannical rule. And then fast forward to the devil's temptation of the Lord Jesus after his baptism and you'll see him flip it around. And don't forget that right before Jesus was tempted in the wilderness was his baptism when God had revealed audibly from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And don't forget what everybody else forgets when they look at the temptations of Jesus that each one begins this way. If you are the son of God, then 
as he declared in your baptism, if thou art the Son of God, then this. What is he doing? He's trying to do it the opposite way. But the first Adam and Eve, he's trying to separate out his in-heavenness from his fatherness. And here with Jesus, he's trying to separate out the fatherness from the in-heavenness. He's your father. He's just declared you to be his son, his beloved son. Well, then eat for crying out loud, eat. I know he told you not to eat for now, but, but he's your father. He'll get over it. If he's your father, you can just do it and, and you can say sorry to him later and it'll be fine. His word doesn't really need to matter that much to you. I know he's told you to build a kingdom by going the way of the cross, but, but that's hard. I'll show you another way, and he won't care. He's your father. He's revealed to you that you're his beloved son. He won't mind. Every time Jesus responds, he's really responding by saying, yes, he is my father, but he is my father who is in heaven. And his fatherhood, the concept of fatherhood to me is not this squishy thing void of any austerity. His word is not a suggestion. His word is a law. And yet at the same time, he knew the intimacy, didn't he? And the, and the love and the warmth and the tenderness. Look at his own prayers and fellowship with his father. Always the devil wants to separate these out from us. And if you ever see the church going in one direction or the other. You know, ultimately, and if you ever see an individual Christian going one way or the other, you know the issue is how do they think about God? And how you think about God is going to come out in how you pray and how you address him and how you carry on in your prayer from there. Both, he is my Father who is in heaven. holy, majestic being who at the same time loves me and welcomes me as his child into his presence and grants me as his child access to himself anytime, any place, 24 hours a day, Seven days a week, 365 days a year, rain or shine, always and forever. Though he has an entire universe to govern. Someone could drop a nuclear bomb, and yet a child of God addresses him, and his ear is attentive to the cry of that child. You have no access to the President of the United States unless he beckons you. And that man is a mere man. Without being summoned, if you would try to get into the White House to see him, to talk to him, you would be denied. Armed men would pull out their guns and fix them upon you. And they would take you away. And everyone would stare at you. What do you think? you are doing. But the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching us that you have unfettered access to one so much greater than any man upon this earth. God of heaven, King of kings, Lord of lords, and that the reason why you have this access always, immediately, right at your right hand at a moment's notice is because He is your Father The president's children 
can come into the Oval Office anytime they want. The president is their father. And no armed men stopped him. The man standing next to the president with the, the dark suit and the dark sunglasses does not pull out his firearm and aim it, but he opens the way and says, yes, you may be here, you have access, you have the right. So too before Jehovah, the God of all gods, the creator and sustainer of all things, the one who is a consuming fire in all of his holiness. You have the rights of a son. Access to him. Always. The Bible often describes praying as lifting ourselves up in the soul, up to God. Psalm 25 verse 1, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Lamentations 3 verse 41, let us lift up our heart unto God in the heavens. Because in prayer, in our soul, as it were, we go up into the very throne room of God Himself. And enter into that astounding place and have access to Him there. And when we do, beloved. The angel Gabriel does not pull out his sword and hold it out in front of us and say, who in the world do you think you are? But he opens the way and says, come, yes, you have the rights of sons, daughters of God to be here. You have access to your father at any time. When you go there, don't forget that you're not the only one in there. But your brothers and your sisters have that same access to and are there with you and ought to be on your mind as you come before your Father. Access is not only yours. Access is ours. It has to strike us that the Lord does not teach us to pray here. My Father who art in heaven. Although we may say that of course my Father who is in heaven, and pray to God that way. His point is not to exclude my Father who art in heaven, but he's making a point, of course, teaching us something important about prayer, that he's not just my Father, but he's our Father, that he has a household. Ephesians 2, verse 19, Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, the household, the family of Jehovah God, is there before his face. And so the Lord carries that throughout the prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he teaches us that even when we go alone in personal private prayer, into that throne room, lift our souls up, and Gabriel sheaths his sword. And he come in. Are not to forget. To take our brothers and sisters in Christ. There with us. In our mind. He is our father. Aware also of their needs. And not only my own needs. It's not just about me. And my individual life with God. Although that is important. But I come before God with them. And intercede for them, under the great intercessor, Jesus Christ, we are a body. Father is not only my father, but father has a large family. And I remember the family. How are you doing with that? How am I doing with that? Is there really an hour in your hour, fathers? And in mine?
for the weak, for the strong, for those who are in rebellion, walking in a wayward path, for those who are submissive, for those who have holes in this area of their thinking, for those who seem to have no holes in any area of their thinking, for the poor, for the rich, for the burdened, for the joyous, for the young, for the old, for the here, and for the there. It's by this, beloved, that Christ keeps us consciously unified with each other before His face. As a denomination, as a universal body of Jesus Christ, to be sure, and also as an individual congregation. Without this hour, as a vital part of our prayers and prayer life, our unity starts to quickly become merely formal. It's not something that's conscious. Without intercession for each other in a congregation, especially a congregation of this size. It's very easy just to think of that person as just that person who sits over there for a couple of hours on Sunday. Or over there. But when we bring each other's needs before the throne of Jesus Christ, before the throne of God's grace in Jesus Christ, then our becomes a real thing, a conscious unity, a binding of lines of spiritual life together. And that person perhaps rubs me the wrong way sometimes. It's not just a sinner, but it's a sinner who's on his knees with me before the throne of God's grace and who has the access of a son before my father. And then no personal estrangement, no tension, no dislike is impossible to be overcome. For I have prayed for him before the throne of father. I've took him in to the throne room when I've had access there. Together we've been there. Consciously I've been there with him. Before the throne of grace. You're praying for each other. Praying for the needs that you know. The ones that you don't know. After all, both my brother and me have access to this throne room, have the rights of sons. And this approach before Jehovah God, the God of all the earth as Father, not because we deserve it, not I any more than Him, but as a gift of grace in Jesus Christ alone. It's not as though I'm first into the throne room because I really am better than him and he can come behind me and maybe he'll get through, we'll see. But both of us have been granted this access of sheer grace alone. I can only call him Father myself for the sake of Jesus Christ, as the Catechism says. God has become our Father in Jesus Christ this body that is being spoken of in Ephesians 2 is a body that is created in Christ Jesus. In Him alone, I may call Him Father. In Him alone, I have the privilege of this access at a moment's notice. And it's the same for my brother, for my sister. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has the right in himself to address him as Father. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has the right in himself to take that name upon his lips. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has the right in himself of access to see Gabriel sheath his sword and to allow him in because only he is truly the Son. Throughout the Old Testament, this question hangs. It hangs over the whole Old Testament. It hangs upon the, the mind and the lips of the people of God throughout the Old Testament. Who will be the true Son? 
Adam is called God's son in the very beginning. But he shows himself very quickly to not be the kind of son that shares a nature with his father. He falls into sin. He rebels against God his father. He doesn't have the same nature as God his father. We keep reading in scripture, and Israel is called God's son. Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son. And I say unto thee, let my son go. But Israel quickly shows himself to not be the son either. As he rebels against God in the wilderness and shows himself not to be of one nature with his father as a true son shares a nature with his father. And you keep reading and you get to the kings and David and Solomon and the kings of Israel are called God's Sons, But even the kings, even the best of them, show themselves to not be the true son of Jehovah God either. They commit horrible sins and rebellion against God. They don't have the same nature as Jehovah God. And then finally we read on the pages of the New Testament, this one in the middle of the Jordan River, God's voice proclaiming, this is my beloved son. Here he is. He's come finally. And all of you people are only sons in him. And as you keep reading, it becomes clear. He does share the nature of his father. There's no sin or taint in him at all. The son. The one alone who in himself has the right to call him father. The one who reveals That God is in his essence a father of a son. The one who reveals that God means to take other sons in this son to himself. That they might know his fatherhood. What's more Jesus knows himself this way. He sees this about himself and he never has one flicker of doubt about it that this is who he is. And so when nobody, the whole Old Testament long, has ever dared to call God Father and to address God this way, to pray to God this way, our Father who art in heaven, here comes the Son. And in every prayer he prays, he addresses him with intimacy. Father, if it be possible, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. Whereas the devil never spoke of God in that or any term that contained intimacy, Jehovah or Father, Jesus never not speaks of him with a term of intimacy. Except once. When hanging upon the cross, he cries out under his dereliction, not my father, my father, but my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For this natural son must take upon himself all of the sin of the unnatural sons. And he must give up for a time what is his right as the natural son that he might give to those who are unnatural sons the rights of adoption. That they in him might have the same access to father that he has. And you see, did that for me and he also did that for my brother and he also did that for my sister and therefore how dare I come in to this access come in to the throne room of Jehovah God and forget about my brother and my sister for whom he's also done this great thing 
for whom he's broken down the middle wall of partition between us and become our peace, having made both one that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Access to whom? Our Father who is in heaven. Access is not merely mine, but ours. And this access, beloved, is sweet. As much as I am aware of my brother's needs and lay them before the throne of God's grace, and I come into the throne room, this address also does mean that I may take part myself as an individual child of God of the benefits of what is the, the sweetest benefit of access to God, which is simply to be with him for a while as my father. The heart of this access to God as our father is just that, that it's access to God as our father, fellowship with him. Not just that I have access to him so that I can make requests for myself or even requests for my brothers and sisters, which are all good things and must be done. Also this, that I simply be with him for a time in fellowship and in intimacy. And that he welcomes me in to have this access to himself that I might be apart with him for a while. That he gives himself to me in prayer. So that when the reality of what the Lord Jesus teaches here in the address. This is how you approach God our Father who art in heaven. When that comes home to the heart of one it will be evidenced by this. That I seek God in prayer not just so that I can ask for things from him. Or even that I can ask for things from him for my brothers and sisters. Just so that I can have him. Is that true of you? And of me, you say with Asaph in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Last Sunday morning we said, Prayer is commanded. It is. It's commanded. It's commanded because God wills us to have this relationship to be a real relationship between himself and us and we need it to be such but what if it wasn't committed it was still there it just wasn't commanded and so what if God said to you you could go the rest of your life without praying if you don't want to I'll be fine with it. And what if he said, this is not going to be the way that I choose to give to you richer amounts of grace and the Holy Spirit. You can be confident that you will have everything you need for body and for soul. You don't need to pray for your daily bread anymore. I'll give you all that you need without the means of prayer at all. And you won't be reprimanded for, praying, for not praying. I won't have you feel any guilt about it. Would you still pray? Would you pray simply to have him? If you fully understand what it means to say, Father, who is in heaven as a son, then you will. Yes, I would. Because I pray not merely to get something from him or not merely to stop him from reprimanding me, but I pray 
precisely because he is my father and I am his son and I need him and I want to be in communion with him simply because he, who, he is who he is and he's made me who I am in relationship with him. And yet how dull to this we can be so often, beloved. And to the wonder of all of this and to the gift that all of this is to us in Jesus Christ. If a little girl breaks her dollhouse, she's going to start crying about it. And she's going to keep crying about it, even if her mom comes in right in the middle of her crying about it to tell her, you won't believe it. Your, your uncle John just willed to you $23 million. The child's going to keep crying about her dollhouse. Why? She doesn't get it. It doesn't mean anything to her. I'm like that sometimes. You are like that sometimes with this. Do you understand what has been granted to you? The rights of sons and daughters before him. And how often we're, we're crying about our pity little things. So much has been given to us. An abundance of grace shown to you and to me, poor, wretched sinners, beloved, undeserving of any of this. May we know it just a little bit more deeply. Be thankful for it and live in it. What it means that he taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven. Amen. Father, we're sorry for not realizing how marvelous this is. And yet, thanks, O oh God, for the marvel that it is, for the gift that it is to us. Give us grace and strength to enter into it for thy glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.